0: Hey, dealmakers, welcome to the show where it's all about financial freedom with real estate. I am your host, Micah Blanc And in this episode, we're going to interview Andrew Cushman, major syndicator. Always love what Andrew has to say. It's going to be a good one because he's going to give us his outlook on the market. And we discuss, gosh, can prices really keep going up? And if so, how? What's the outlook for interest rates and inflation? And what do we do to mitigate some any kind of risks on the horizon? We also talk about how to structure debt correctly. That's super, super important. And then how is he finding deals today? He shares with us a really cool off-market strategy. That's uh, in the episode here in just a few minutes. Now, just real quick, the episode is sponsored by Dealmaker Certification. And this is really our online program and community to help you prepare you to do your first deal here in the next 12 months or so. So you can find out more about that at dealmakercertification.com. certification.com. Uh, you're going to have a training available and some resources. So check that out. If you have not done your first deal yet, and you really want to get into apartment building investing. So check this out there. I want to do a shout out to drew Pitchford uh, who left us a review on iTunes. He said he started listening to Michael a few weeks before dealmaker 2021 that we had in July in Dallas. And I ended up attending that's pretty cool. Uh, He says, Michael presents Info in a clear, straightforward manner. The focus on objectively evaluating real estate is great. Also, hearing from other people in the industry helps round out my education. So, thanks for that, Drew. I appreciate that review on iTunes. I also want to give a shout out to Omer Singer. Uh, one of our mentoring students who did his first deal, a 16-unit in Long Beach, California, for $4.25 million, working with our mentor, Barry Flevin. C- congratulations on that. Um, I want to bring now on our co-host, Garrett Lynch. What's going on, Garrett? How's it going, Michael? One of the things we talk about here on the show, um, because we just recorded it, is we talk about debt and getting the right debt on there. And in there, we do talk about agency debt and
1: bridge debt. Can you give us a primer on the difference between the two? So agency debt is very useful uh, when you want to hold a property for a long period of time and you want to f- typically a fixed rate. There is some agency debt that is floating, but uh, you're looking at, f- at uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. Those are really your two options for agency. And typically those agencies have lower interest rates and they don't, they're not able to give you capital improvement money to do your project but they're very uh user-friendly and uh, again you can get really low low rates now the, they're typically going to underwrite more stringent so if there is a heavy lift on your property you're not going to be able to get as high of leverage on that they have dscr restrictions and uh, you're going to go and get, get it underwritten if if there's you know big rent bumps or there's some vacancy you may, may not even qualify for that loan. So typically you have to have 90% occupancy to even get into the agency loan. So it has a, a purpose, it's easily assumable, and it's a great option for some people. Now, the other side of that is the bridge debt. And bridge debt is more for projects. So it's it's really a bridge for you to get, for, get a big project on a heavy lift, uh, rent bumps, vacancy, whatever, you get this type of loan. And the thing that those lenders are looking for is, can you exit at the price you're saying you can exit at? You're gonna get a little bit higher interest rates on those. Right now, they're a little bit higher. Before they were real quite a bit higher on that, but you have complete flexibility. And that also means the interest rate floats. Uh, so you can get out of these without any prepayment penalties or, or a light fee, typically after one one year to 18 months. Uh, and then they're right for refinances, and and you know typically they're shorter term. They're not going to be ten year like agency. They're uh, you know three years plus two extensions or something like that. Uh, is typically how those look. And so each has its own use, and they're they're uh, they each have their strengths and weaknesses.
0: That's pretty cool. And we've actually used a uh, a little bit of both. And I think the point that we're going to make here in a little bit is, you know, there you got to make sure you use the right kind of debt for the particular deal, whatever your business plan is. And before we get into the interview, I want to answer a question from one of our deal makers on social media. This one is Cedric Mayfield from YouTube. He asked, Should I create a thought leadership platform, like a podcast to increase my credibility before I even start raising money or looking for deals? So The short answer is probably not, right? There's certain sequence of events uh, that we have in our dealmaker blueprint and this is kind of putting the cart before the horse. Really, you want to learn how to raise money and start looking for deals. Ideally, you really want to have raised some amount of money before you start building a thought leadership platform. They say you, it's very difficult or impossible to automate a process that doesn't exist manually. It's very hard to broadcast a message that doesn't exist. Message meaning, how do you speak to investors? What are their questions? What are their concerns? What do they want? Once I know those things, I can then create content and messaging on a platform. If you're interested in more about that, we actually have some training material at platformbuilders.com. Uh, there's a training course on the exact sequence to build your platform in what order. And it kind of goes deeper in what I'm just talking about. So if you, if you have a question uh, that you want to uh, the answer on the on the show here, reach us out on platform, the handle is the Michael Blanc, it's on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, all the social channels as well. So let's get a, hit an interview with Andrew Cushman. Andrew, he's a former chemical engineer, And he became a full-time real real estate entrepreneur in 2007 when he left his position and started his business. And like many of us started flipping houses in 2007 and then in 2000 left and shifted to multifamily. It's almost exact timing that I followed with my flipping houses and getting multifamily. Now today he's got over 2,100 multifamily units. He's a great guy. He's a certified Alpine ski instructor, does some super extreme, extreme skiing and loves to surf. And uh, I talk to him once a month. We kind of mastermind together. And today he is on the show. Let's get right into the show with uh, Andrew Cushman. You're listening to the Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing podcast, hosted by Garrett Lynch and Michael Blanc, where we talk all about how you can achieve financial independence through apartment building investing. Whether you're just starting out or you want to scale your syndication
1: business, this is the show for you.
2: Andrew, welcome to the show today. Hey, good to be here again. Appreciate uh, the chance to talk with you guys. Yeah, it's
0: been a little while. It's good to catch you while you're not surfing, so we're skiing, which you can't do in the summer, but I appreciate you being here. But one of the things that we talk a lot about Andrew, and you know looking back over the last five or six years is, how could multifamily go up any higher? Like, maybe we should just sell everything, and we certainly have been selling, and you've been selling. Now, you know, what's your outlook on that? I mean, are you buying right now? Or are you sitting on your hands? Like, what do you what do you think?
2: We're net buyers right now. Kind of actually starting at the end, you, you mentioned that we're selling something. Uh, we are, we're selling properties in uh, Atlanta right now just because we hit our, our pro forma timeline and we were like, you know what? It does make sense to take some chips off the table occasionally. It's been a really interesting process because I thought, that most of the bids were just going to be people like, just like so it's only 132 units. So it's not like a massive property. And we thought a lot of the bids were going to be people just like overly anxious just to get a deal or, you know, because this property is kind of within reach for a lot of people. That was not the case at all. Out of the 25 legitimate offers that we had, at least 20 of them were from very large, extremely well-funded, very sophisticated groups that own 10, 15, 20,000 units. And they are getting their hands on as much multifamily real estate as they possibly can. So that kind of made me stop and think, well, all right, if these people, these groups are that confident in multifamily, then that helps give confidence that it still makes sense to buy the right properties in the right locations. And so we are still doing that. Uh, Inflation, the right types of inflation do tend to benefit multifamily real estate in particular. Um, Lots of hard assets, but multifamily in particular tends to benefit from that. And so we are trying to buy as much good multifamily as we can without lowering our standards for acquisition. So what that's meant is we are averaging having to analyze 220 deals to make 28 offers to win one, right? That one that we do win, we have high confidence that that's going to be a great property for the next five you know, plus years or
0: whatever. Oh, what, what do you mean by good inflation versus bad inflation, and and what is your outlook on inflation, and how does that impact real estate?
2: Well, if I knew the the exact answer to all that, I'd be worth more than Musk, Gates, and Bezos combined, and you know. But since I don't have my own rocket to space yet, that tells you that uh, I'm not quite there. You know, when I say good inflation and bad inflation, that that I should probably clarify that quote unquote, good inflation for real estate is the type of inflation where we have wages are going up, meaning tenants can afford to pay higher levels of rents. And the cost of building is going up, right? Again, there's other negative ramifications of this, but this is from the perspective of a landlord, right? So as the cost of labor goes up, as the cost of building goes up, the value of the properties themselves go up. And um, therefore, you know, prices prices go up and then as wages go up, tenants can afford to pay higher rent, which leads to increasing that operating income. and as anyone who's listened to you for a while knows that operating income is what drives is largely drives the value of your property, right that's good inflation. the I would say bad inflation or the one the, the biggest scenario that I see as the potential biggest risk is a situation where we have, significantly rising interest rates without the corresponding rise of wages and costs, right? Because that means your net operating income is not going up. But if interest rates do go up, then that means one or two things has to happen to sell a building. That means you're either going to have to sell it for a lower price or the investors are going to have to accept a lower yield. So that would be the one situation that uh, I would see as the biggest risk. And there's ways to mitigate that. But that would, that's how I would say inflation that's bad for real estate is Rising rates with flat wages and flat income, good for real estate. Is rising wages and income?
1: So, Andrew, that's and that's such a great analysis of inflation. But talk to me about what, how you guys are actually structuring your deals around that, as far as your capital stack. Like, what does that look like nowadays? Are you guys doing fixed rate? Are you guys going floating? Where are you guys hedging your risk?
2: Yeah, that's in, you touched on a key, a key. A really key piece of it, right? The wrong debt and, and, and the right property goes together about as well as microwaves and, and tinfoil, right? I mean, it, it, they can really screw each other up if you don't marriage that properly. So, you know, how we're mitigating it um, on the most recent property that we closed, we actually went with 12-year fixed Fannie Mae debt. And you might say, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. are you going to hold that thing for 12 years? Then not plan, no. But here's why, because that debt gives us a good exit almost no matter what happens with the market. Here's why. With 12-year Fannie Mae debt, you can get two supplemental loans. So if we get three years down the road and we want to pull some cash out, we can. And by the way, our business plan is to hold this property for six years. When we go to sell in year five or year six, some, a buyer can come in and assume our low interest rate loan. So let's say we're in a market where interest rates have gone way up, right? A buyer can come in and say, oh, hey, instead of getting my own loan at 6%, I'm gonna take over yours at 3.7, get a supplemental, I have a I have a low blended rate. And because of that extra supplemental, that buyer can get all the way back up to 75% leverage. So we're not getting hurt on the having to have a buyer bring in ton of leverage. So E so they can keep our low rate and get the leverage. So it's the best of best of both worlds for the buyer. What happens if interest rates are somehow down when we go to sell in six years? Okay, well, that means we're going to pay some yield maintenance or basically prepayment penalty on that loan. But if rates are somehow down five years from now, that probably means cap rates are also lower, which means the valuation of that property is probably going to be even higher. And we're probably going to be more than, more than happy to go ahead and pay that yield maintenance. Worst case scenario, six year, five, six years from now, somehow the market is in a horrible place make prices are way down. We can't, you know, it doesn't make sense to sell or refinance. We can hold for up to six more years and ride it out. Right. So that's, that's one example. And there's, there are ways to do this type of stuff with bridge debt too, but that is one example of structuring your debt with your business plan to give you a good exit almost no matter what happens.
1: That's right. And so we, we actually have done both. So there's, there's really two plays for us. It's, that ironically, we're in the midst of selling a deal that has that structure. And our, our hope was that, we, so we, we were like, why do the 10-year and we can do the 12-year? And we have that supplemental option. Now, this, this property in particular has had its challenges along the way um, in a secondary market. And it's never quite operated there. Now, we're exiting at a, uh, a profit, even with the yield maintenance because interest rates stayed low. We were hoping that, like you said, it would the interest rates would rise in the rest of the market. And after six years, you know, that would be an attractive piece of debt to pick up. Unfortunately, right now it's not because everything else is, is low yep. still. But prices prices are crazy right now. So so it makes sense anyway. So that's right where we're in the middle of. Now, what about bridge debt strategies? Because that's obviously the go-to, right? Everybody's going for that. If you are looking at that, where are you putting your caps at? Are you going, are you just Going to the minimum for your for the lender, or are you doing something more strategic on that?
2: Yeah, we're actually um, under contract on one right now where we're going to be doing bridge debt. Uh, the reason being is there's it's a, there's a tremendous amount of value add to it, and uh, it doesn't it wouldn't qualify for a good fan agency loan yet, and it will down the road, right? So yeah, so I I think bridge debt definitely has its place. Uh, my guess is. We probably won't see significant interest rate increases for at least the next 18 to 24 months. So there's probably a window there where bridge debt is relatively safe. And then, you know, you can go ahead and and refinance into into fixed debt. So that is actually our plan with this particular property. We're going to get bridge debt, do the value add, um, lease up some brand new units that are being built and then refinance into agency debt. What we do on that bridge debt side to mitigate the risk, and you alluded a little bit to this, Garrett, is we are actually not taking the maximum leverage they offered us. They said, hey, we'll do 80%. We said, you know what? We're good at 75. We, we would rather drop the leverage. How about this? You just give us 75 and lower the interest rate 10 basis points. And we'll do that instead. We'll bring a little more equity than required just to make sure we got some cushion. So that's number one. Number two, we had an offer for a bridge loan with amazing terms, but for one year, right? That means we had to refinance that thing in 12 months. Well, what if we're in wave 87 of COVID and there's no lenders around, right? Well, you know, to me, we don't want to have that financial gun against our head. So what we did is said, all right, no, we're going to do a five-year bridge, right? Our business plan for the property is to hold it for five years, right? So with five years of bridge, the... The worst case scenario in theory is well, fine, we keep that bridge loan for five years. Hopefully, if everything goes to plan and as expected, we'll refi out of it by the end of year two. But again, we have options, right? We're not forced into doing taking a you know a refi or a sale at a very inopportune time. So that's again, that's just an example of structuring your deal to mitigate that risk, not pretending it's not there, but mitigating it.
0: So this is the thing. We're not in the risk avoidance business. We're in the risk management business. That's, that's the definition of entrepreneurship. And a lot of people confuse us. Like, Oh my gosh, how do I, what happens if this, what happens to that? Well, it's, if you want to avoid it, then you sit there and you watch news all day long, right? Then you avoid it entirely. You said it's all about mitigating. You said, Hey, we win whether or not this or that happens. It gives us flexibility. We don't know what's, what's going to happen though it's our business to kind of figure out what the probabilities are, right? And so you talked about the right kind of debt on this. And it's, you know, in the beginning, it was just like, well, we're just going to lock in the 10 year fixed debt at five and a half percent, because how can it possibly go lower? You know, because in the beginning, you don't think through these things, but you want to think through those things. And again, you are you do think in probabilities. And one of the things that I think people are concerned with is interest rates going up. Now, you just said that, oh my gosh, you know, the next 18, 24 months is not likely to go up. Okay, that's great and then what right you know what is the risk and what is the mitigation of the risk if interest rates were to spike up and you talked about this bad inflation right if interest rates go goes up and wages go up and inflation goes up and it, the rents keep going up well then we can preserve that return that we're, we're looking for somehow right and so talking in probabilities like when you as you're underwriting deals how are you mitigating that possibility or how strongly are you mitigating that possibility based on what you're seeing in the next five years
2: So three things come to mind. One, we already talked about structuring the debt to mitigate it. The other two things that immediately pop into my mind as to how to mitigate that are your rent growth assumptions and your exit cap rate, right? So on rent growth, uh, what we do is we look at, you know, take a market like Savannah, for example, You know, we look at the historical rent growth for the last 10 years. And then we look at the future projected rent growth for the next 10 years and see what those two numbers are. And then we will put our pro forma rent growth somewhere a little bit significantly below that, right? So we were looking at a property in Augusta recently, Augusta, Georgia. You know, For the last five or six years, rent growth there has been in like above 4%. For the next two years uh, in this submarket, it was projected to be like seven to 8%. And then it just kind of slowly trails off after that. So what we did is we took that basically a 20 year average and the 20 year average was like in the high uh, I forget what the number was, but we we it at 2.5, right? Saying, well, if we got a 20 year average that's well above this number and we assume a 2.5 and it's almost never been below 2.5, that is a realistic assumption, right? Everybody who talks about multifamily these days talks about conservative assumptions and conservative underwriting, but no one actually says exactly what that means. To me, that's what that is. Like right? saying, hey, my 10 year average is three, we're going to perform a 2.5. And if it comes, if it ends up at three and a half, you look like a hero, but if projections are wrong and it ends up a little bit low, you're still at least meeting your numbers, right? The second thing is, you know, we talked, just talked, we talked about the debt, we talked about the rent growth. The second is exit cap rate, right? And cap rates are kind of this woo-woo confusing thing. Everyone gets all worked up about when you're buying, especially if you're doing value add candidly, you know, Don't worry that much about cap rates. Look at your cash flow, your internal rate of return, your equity multiple, all those things that are real dollars in the bank, right? Cap rate is really more a measure of market sentiment, right? How excited and eager are investors willing to be to purchase the cash flow that comes from a multifamily property? So, how do you use cap rate to mitigate risk? One way that you do that is. When you're buying a property regardless of the state that it's in whether it's value add stabilized or whatever find out what the cap rate would be for that property in today's market if it were fully stabilized and fully marketed right so you know let's say you're buying a 1985 property in atlanta and someone was you know and if that property was you know fully stabilized and you know listed for six weeks you know 37 offers all that okay, well, this might trade at a four cap. And so then what you do is you take that number, you're not using that four cap to determine your purchase price, you're using it to determine your exit, right? So how you mitigate the risk of rising uh, interest rates and rising cap rates, you use that four as a starting point, and then add 10 basis points, or some people do 15, we do 10, add 10 basis points of cap rate expansion for every year that you're going to hold the property. So if you plan on holding it for five years, you're going to underwrite to a four and a half percent cap rate on the exit. So what does that do? Well, that significantly lowers your projected sales price from what it would be if you were at a four cap. So that's how you mitigate, what's one way to mitigate the rising rates and cap rate, and guess what? If those cap rates don't go up guess, again, you're a hero at the end because you're going to just blow away your projections. If they do go up, well, hey, you, you plan for it. You're hitting your numbers. So all these little things added together are what make for, you know, what I like to say, realistic and um, risk mitigated underwriting.
0: That's exactly right. You will not put. Layers of margin for error in your on your underwriting, and this is another another great example. Is my gosh, if you're baking in a a refinance, then you can use a higher interest rate. So if it's in yes. two three years from now, use a higher interest rate. Or if you're using floating rate debt, like we've done, and for example, Brian Burke have done, you know, buy interest rate caps, and you're buying you know you're buying it at four and a half percent. It's currently at three and a half percent. Well, if the deal works at four and a half percent, the worst case scenario, and it still works. It's fantastic. So each time you do these things, you build in layers of, of margin into that thing. And, it, and it, just, it just proves the fact that people get really kind of bent out of shape about, you know, oh my gosh, should I get into multifamily? I think that's a wrong question because the fundamentals are there, which we think they are. But you got to modify the tactics. And sometimes, especially having COVID, the tactics, for example, the underwriting changed literally by the week you know, lower loan to value. No, you can't get bridge loan. You can't finance uh, construction anymore. Then you got to put 12 months of escrows in. it's like insane. Every time you do it, you will modify your underwriting and it modifies your purchase price. And this is literally, I mean, every month, you know, we make changes, but the question, you know, really is it's, it's been tough. You mentioned it's been tough to find deals. You know, you have a a pretty established track record and, uh, you know, we have a pretty established track record also still challenging to find deals you're talking about you know underwriting 200 maybe it used to be 100 you know maybe a few years ago it's a little harder to do that now but what are you guys doing to not only find deals so one is number one is is deal flow but the other one is how do you actually win them
2: yeah well so for deal flow our top source is still long-term good broker relationships guys and a couple of girls that we talk to on a regular basis and have been talking to for a long period of time and that know you know that we're going to close and know that what we're looking for so number one is that Two, we actually are doing some direct outreach to owners. We're doing that in markets where we don't really have good broker relationships because we don't want to go around the brokers or or circumvent what they're doing. So we're being very, very selective about the markets that we do that in. Uh, Basically, it's kind of expansion markets for us. Uh, we haven't closed a deal yet that way, but we have had in-person meetings with several owners who have expressed interest in selling to us at, you know, in the future in their point. So that's definitely a long game uh, type of thing. And then uh, we actually put in an offer a couple of days ago on a property where the owner saw us buy the property a couple of miles away from theirs and said, oh, hey, these guys are buying in an the area and they called us. And then driving for dollars, again, we haven't bought a property this way, but we've had our local managers and our, you know, quote unquote boots on the ground people say, hey, there's this property that you know looks like it could need some work, or I think it might be for sale, or you know, hey, if we, if you got this, we could do this and this and this. And and so then, we'll, all right, well, send us the information. Let's get in touch with the owner and see if we can put a deal together. Or we've reached out to a broker we know and say, hey, do you know this owner? Do You think you could get them to take an offer from us? Right. So so boots in the ground. And there's all kinds of I mean ways to get a deal. Again, number one is definitely broker relationships, but we've been using those other methods as well.
0: Talk about uh, that other method. It's not something we, we hear a lot. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, in mobile home parks, you hear some of this, like Kevin Bubb does a lot. He has like an entire team cold calling and skip tracing. And it, it's, it's typically because mobile home parks tend to be uh, used, uh, owned more by mom and pops. You know, they don't have layers of partnerships and gatekeepers. And I remember I used to do it for house flipping as well as probably, you know, sending out postcards and, and skip tracing people. It doesn't seem to work as much in multifamily for the reasons I just mentioned, but I'd like maybe to talk about at least you're getting owners to call call you, which is the start of a pipeline, obviously, can you share a little bit more about what you're doing there, how you're finding and and how you're reaching out to them?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we pay for data from um, a service called Reonomy. Which will give you the properties and you know and basic information. And there's there's plenty of other sources to get it from, but that's just the one that we decided to go with. Uh, we then skip trace that to clean it up. We have like a virtual assistant. You know, you'll have 18 numbers for one person, so we have the virtual assistant go through and figure out the two that are actually working, and that's you know who our caller is going to actually call is those two numbers. We have a virtual assistant that screens every one of those properties, right? We don't want to waste time calling a property that's you know, built in 1913 in a flood zone and, you know, in a in, in crime area, right? So we weed all that stuff out. We get it down to a list of properties we really do believe we want to own and working phone numbers. Then our cold caller uh, starts calling them. You know, he doesn't have a script. He has a framework, right? Just to kind of get a conversation going. And, and, and one of my favorite questions is not to say, would you take an offer or would you sell this property? My favorite question to ask, I probably shouldn't put this out to the whole world, but my favorite question to ask is under what circumstances would you consider selling? Right? That totally reframes it because some, sometimes the answer will be well, when I'm Dead, you know my my kids are gonna get it. Or well, if you make me a crazy offer, well, okay, what's a crazy offer? And sometimes that crazy offer isn't as crazy as they think it is, right? And sometimes it really is crazy, <laughs> and you're like, yep, you're right. Yeah, we're not gonna do. It. That's not gonna happen. So again, we don't have a script. It's more of a framework where it's just kind. And we try to build a relationship. Well, let, you know, and then if there is some potential there, you know, like I said, we've done some in person meetings, and it's it's very much. like you said, Michael, a long, long game plan where it'd be great if we get a deal tomorrow, but we're really expecting it more like six, nine, 12 months down the road. And then you alluded to this as well. The bigger up you go or the higher up in the property chain, the harder that gets, right? Because for a 200 unit property that's owned by a REIT, isn't going to just sell it more than likely, isn't going to just sell it because you happen to call them, right? But especially if you're getting started and you're in the 10, 15, 20 unit range, that's where you tend to have the more individual and mom and pop ownership and you have a higher probability of striking that, that one-off deal. So to me, if I was getting started today and I was looking at smaller stuff, I would definitely be going, in addition to broker relationships, I would definitely also be going direct, but being careful to not be circumventing the
1: brokers. Yeah, that's that's actually a great point. So one of the ways that I approach these things, because I'm I'm always on the hunt in a similar fashion, but one of the markets that we were in, I made a round of calls, like I had a data list, same thing, combed through it, skip traced. And then I personally made the calls myself as introducing myself as an owner in the market. If you already own a property in the market, you can start in as like a lead in and just say, Hey, I just want to introduce myself. I'm your neighbor now um We just bought this property down the street. Now you're kind of on their level. You're like, oh, oh, cool, another owner in the market. You start the conversation up. You could talk about anything else for a while or a minute, and then, hey, just let me know. By the way, if you ever want to do a sale or or have a transaction at some point, you're ever thinking about selling, why don't we chat about that and and kind of open the door that way? I did that, and six months later, an eighty unit popped out of nowhere. One a call on the weekend on a Saturday. And he way undersold the asset because I don't think he knew what was going on in the market. Uh, I was able to pick it up for like 50 a door. And deals were trading for about 85 a door in that, in that area of the market. And so I wrote up a three-page contract. I was like, here, it's just sign this thing. Because I knew if, as soon as word got out or anyone else got this, they'd snatch this thing up. I didn't care what the terms were. <laughs> we even found some down units that he wouldn't, didn't tell us about, but we were so underpriced that it worked out really well in our favor. Now, what happened though, is brokers got wind of this they actually got mad that i picked this up and one of the relationships got kind of ruined in the process they could not believe that we had picked up this deal so i i really resonate with that point that you made where you're going to you're gonna upset the brokers if they find out you're doing this cuz you're kind of doing their job for them as well right
2: yeah, you're you're right, and here's here's one way to again um, mitigate that risk. Right, going back on the thing we were talking about before, something similar has happened to us before, where a broker showed us a deal, it didn't work out, and then I don't remember if if we called them or they reached out to us, but somehow we got back in that. We ended up with a direct connection to that seller, and we're talking about you know they're they're interested in selling it to us. If that happens. I'm going to call that broker and say, hey, this wasn't intentional. Here's how it happened. And we are going to pay you a small commission finder fee for attempting to get us connected. We appreciate your work you know, and we 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 still think you should you should get rewarded for trying to do that. Right. So in the rare situation where we think something like that might happen, we're not going to wait for them to find out. We're going to call them. We're going to tell them and we're going to give them a piece of the, a piece of our fee for, you know, for being the one that intentionally, you know, that, that, that tried to put it together for us first.
0: So what are you doing right now to maintain deal flow? And we've had internal conversations about that. You know, uh, we were just awarded a deal also, which is, which is great. Uh, You know, we're trying to do three or four deals a year. And, you know, we're a bit concerned about our ability to, to maintain that, that kind of level of, of deal flow, which we can solve in a variety of ways. We can try to get, do bigger deals, do fewer, bigger deals. Uh, we could potentially join venture with others and maybe, uh, combine forces and together do bigger deals. Maybe someone else has a bigger deal, but hey, I, what have you thought? Or, and so there's others even who expand asset classes. They're getting into a different asset class. Uh, I mean, where are you on this stuff? Are you like, man, we're going to maintain course. Uh, we're going to just grind it out. Uh, or have you, what have you thought about?
2: You know, as far as going to different asset classes, I mean, there there are plenty of other, you know, self-storage and and industrial and a lot of those asset classes are doing really well. I'm a big believer, at least for us, of get really, really good at one thing. And so that's the path that we've we've chosen. We're really similar to you, Michael, where, you know, our goal is three to four large deals a year right now large being average, maybe 200 units a piece. And so how we're doing that is we're trying to increase the number of leads coming into the funnel, right? So if we got to make 28 offers to get one, and we got to look at 220 to make those 200 offers, well, it means we have to look at, order to get four deals in a year, we have to look at 220 deals every quarter. So that's 70 deals a month we have to analyze. So then it's like, oh, well, how do we analyze 70 deals a month? And you know, okay, that means we need to be doing way more deal sourcing, which primarily will mean meeting with and talking with brokers. And then in order to properly analyze that many, we're probably going to need to bring on another person to help with just be dedicated, who someone who just loves diving into spreadsheets and doing that analysis day in, day out, so that our current acquisitions team can spend more time on the sourcing, right? Getting more of the potential deals coming in, uh, so that we have seventy a month to analyze, so we can make those twenty-eight offers a quarter, and, and hopefully get the one deal. So that's what we're trying to do: is figure out, and that could mean again bringing on more help, maybe adding, you know, markets. Like for example, we're pretty concentrated in Florida and Georgia. We like the Carolinas and Tennessee, but candidly, you know, we've been so busy in the other states that we we haven't gone as deep as we could in those other areas, right? So, all right, well, how do we go as deep in these other markets as we have in Georgia and Florida, for example? So, that's how we plan on doing it is it, it's very tempting to see everyone else around you doing all these deals and just being like, well, I'll just pay a little bit more. Um, I think the safer route, especially given you know the uncertainty of where we're headed over the next few years, is to say, all right, yeah, I'm looking for a needle in a haystack, so how do I get a giant magnet and go through a million haystacks, right? Instead of instead of the other way around just saying, well, I'll just take whatever I find here.
0: But, you know, now everybody listening, watching this right now, this is how you can provide value to people like Andrew Cushman or us at Nighthawk is we need more deal flow, right? So what can you do to, to help with that? If you're in a market that he just mentioned, finding deals, analyzing deals, it's a great way to build a relationship with a broker. And in, in fact, people who are successful in this game, they stay work for free. It's like what it says in Rich Dad, you know, Poor Dad is don't work for money you know, work for free. Brandon Turner even has uh, interns, right? He has a whole, an army of interns that he brings on and he does this long enough and people start bubbling up. In fact, his current COO has started as an intern with him. So I love that. It's a great way from from our perspective, Andrew, to, to scale. You know, why not hire someone who focuses on, on, on a Carolina market, right? And all they do is call brokers and source deals and send them, you know, filter them and send them your way for which you might pay them nothing. You might pay them something per the hour and you might pay them a little sliver of GP for that you know, because you can't be everywhere. I mean, you really, you need, multi, you know, eyes in different markets.
1: So this is a great opportunity. Andrew, I got a question. So right now, at least what I'm seeing, and maybe you're seeing the same thing is that there's less off market activity than usual because people are listing their deals because best and finals are going up like 20% over what the brokers are are saying. Are you guys getting involved in in that chaos? And if so, what does that look like for you as far as the terms you're throwing out there to try to get after these deals?
2: Yeah, so you're saying, are we getting getting involved in the the listing and best and final chaos? Yes. We are, but I would say two things. Number one, we never ever want to actually win that because the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese when it comes to bidding on some of these properties. And my favorite position to land in is third or fourth with knowing the possibility that the top bidder top buyer is not going to be able to perform and it could eventually we we have bought deals that way where you know the first two buyers didn't perform and it eventually came down to us at that, that the price that that did work for us but yeah we do participate and I mean to be fully transparent one of the main reasons that we still participate in listed deals and marketed properties is number one you never know you know what's going to happen buyers fall out it ends up coming back to you two you can win it on terms other than price, right? So, okay, maybe you're a half a million dollars less than the top price, but you've got a good track record or you're willing to do hard money or you're willing to close in 30 days or you know, whatever creative terms you can think of, there's other ways to win besides price. So if we try to look for ways to win the deal without being the highest price. And then the other main reason for doing it candidly is to stay top of mind. Right. You, you you have to be out in the market participating, making offers, and doing and, and, and looking at deals. That benefits you. Um, because no, number one, because the best way to spot an awesome deal is to look at a thousand bad ones first. And when you and you're gonna just recognize that good one the minute you see it after looking at all those bad ones. Second of all. Is I mean look at from the broker's perspective, right? I mean, think of we uh, think of how many buyers that they have to manage and keep track of and 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 know. The more that you're interacting with them and saying giving feedback and say, hey, you know, I love this asset. Eh, unfortunately, you know, we're not gonna be able to participate in the best and final or whatever. Okay, fine. But through that interaction, they've number one, you've gotten to know each other a little bit more, which is always a good, always a benefit for that. But two, they've Learned a little bit more about what you're looking for and how you operate and what you can do. And that increases the chance that the next seller that they talk to and, the, and when the seller goes, yeah, you know what, I might I might take an offer on this. They think, of, oh, you know what? Garrett barely missed out on that last one. This one's perfect. I bet there's a good chance we could just make a deal. And, the, and he calls you and says, hey, Garrett, so, you know, I know you just missed out on this other deal in Atlanta. You know, This guy up the street says he'll take an offer. I can give you 48 hours, right? And that's some of the outcome of participating in marketed properties. Yeah, you might get lucky and get a deal, but there's just overall other benefits to doing it.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. The other thing that I do is, when we do finally win deal, I tell everyone <laughs> after we get past that PSA period, because now yeah. they're all like, oh, shoot, I had that one. I was trying to get to my guy or whatever, whatever it is. I make sure every broker in my market knows that we got that thing locked up so that they know we're actual players, not just tire kickers, of course. So I think that that's pretty funny. So one other really question I, know, I, I wanted to run by you now. So the typical model, the way people look at, at these deals is, you're you're paying a certain price, but you're paying it based on whatever potential upside exists after you do your renovations. And typically it's like taking classic units, bring them up to renovated units, and getting higher rents. Well, rents have gone up so much, they've gone to levels that are like three, four, sometimes five hundred dollar rent bumps, depending on where you're at in the market. Are you looking at it? Are, as far as and this, all these rents, just this just happened, by the way, this is like the last six months, mm-hmm. rents have gone like skyrocketing. Are you underwriting to a conservative level of the rents? Or are you going to kind of where they're actually going? How do you look at that? As far as in your underwriting? Because again, things shot up so quick. Are you going to those levels now and, and taking it through the whole property? Tell us about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, you bring up a really good point, because the current level of rent increase is not sustainable, right? We cannot continue upwards. I mean, some of the markets we're in have right now have 11 and 12% annual rent growth. That's not long-term sustainable. So yeah, so the question is, well, what do you do? Forecasts for the next few years are for continued above trend line rent growth for at least the, at least the next two years. So what we do is and as you mentioned, with the the frequent cases, you're doing some late renovations or you're doing something to bump rents, right? So how we like to underwrite it is we say, okay, what is today's rent, and underwrite to getting all of the units up to today's rents without assuming underlying growth on top of that, right? Or maybe a small amount. So again, if the if the market forecast is for five percent in 2022, we're going to say mm, two and a half, right? So that when that rent growth slows down, it doesn't catch you off guard. That's the first thing is, is you know getting the forecast and then underwriting below that. And then also, if you can get the property to underwrite by just bringing rents up to where they are today, then you're good to go. Because rent growth will slow down. Again, again, anything could happen, but it would probably something would dramatically have to change for rent growth to go negative right now. I mean, there's just such a shortage of supply that that is, I think we'd have bigger problems going on if if rent growth actually went negative. The second thing is, you know, in addition to looking at, uh, you know, what you're doing with rent growth going forward, again, how do you mitigate the potential for it not working out, right? So, The reason that I said the incredible rent growth we're experiencing right now is not sustainable is affordability, right? If it continues at this pace, no one's going to be able to afford to pay rent and wage inflation or not. So one of the ways you mitigate that is buy properties where your renovated rent is a low percentage of the median income, right? That means it's your rent, even at future levels, is easily afforded by the majority of people living in that market. So what does that look like for actual real numbers? Let's say you're buying a property where the rent's 800 and you think you can get it to a thousand, right? So your future rent is a thousand. Affordable rent is generally considered to be where a person or family has to spend 25% or less of their gross income on rent. So if your future rent is $1,000 a month, that's $12,000 a year, 25% $12,000 is 25% of $48,000. So if that property, if if you buy that property in an area or neighborhood where the median income is eight thousand dollars or higher, that means your future rent is affordable and you're going to have a large pool of potential renters and that's how you mitigate that affordability risk, right? So again, all these little things stack up to put the odds in your favor.
0: Andrew, you always pack these episodes full of stuff, man. I really appreciate you bringing it today here. How can people connect with you?
2: Uh, well, hopefully uh, we can see each other in person at next year's Dealmaker Live. If you Google Andrew Cushman or Vantage lots of stuff comes up. Probably the best way is just yeah, vpacq.com. And there's a couple of tabs on there to con- you know, reach out and contact us in different ways. And uh, those will come to my inbox.
0: Awesome. So. Great. Awesome having you on the show, Andrew.
2: Uh, it was good talking to you guys. Always, uh always enjoy catching up.
0: All right. So the interesting bottom line is this. Cushman is still doing deals. And so are we, right? We're still looking for deals. There's a few on the sidelines, kind of like they're, you know, they're not exactly sure, or they're not as adapting as quickly. And I think the thing that we're, that we're doing is uh, we're just stepping it up. You know, we have to look at more, look at more deals. And I just really like that when, when t- times are tough, You know, we become, as entrepreneurs, we become resourceful. So Andrew's become resourceful. How do we maybe reach out to owners directly and maybe tertiary markets?
1: You have to basically pivot within your market based on the conditions. And that's, that's what Andrew's alluding to and very very bright guy has been doing this uh, for a while and and really knows his stuff and there's a lot of the same stuff that that we do to try to win deals as well there's multiple angles it's not just all one you want to have as many sticks in the fire as possible and then something will eventually pop out and then you and then you go at it aggressively to to make it your own and so um i really liked how he touched on on some of his you know skip tracing techniques, and I really liked what he said. When he said, "Under what circumstances would you consider selling?" When he did finally reach the owner, I thought that was pretty clever, and that's a really good way to frame it. Um, the other thing that I think that he brought up that was really good was just how he mitigates risk on the debt side. I think talking about not taking maximum leverage and some other things like that were, were pretty helpful.
0: Yeah, exactly right. Uh, You know, adjusting your underwriting and not compromising your underwriting. And we don't do that either. What we have started to do is we've become more aggressive with the terms. And even Andrew talked about being more aggressive with the terms, meaning that uh, we may consider EMD hard from day one. That's something that we've always kind of shied away from. But over the last few months, we said, Oh, my gosh, I think we need to do it. Now we, again, adjust our tactics to accommodate that. We do a lot of the due diligence up front while the PSA is being negotiated. So we actually do wire the money in and we basically, you know, know 90% of that deal and the risk goes down. So you're constantly adjusting your tactics. You're not throwing out the strategy at all. So uh, I like that as well. Adjusting your underwriting, not compromising your, your criteria. Super important. What else stood out for you?
1: So what I really liked was his definition of good inflation versus bad inflation. I thought that was super powerful. Uh, and, and right now we're in kind of that moment of good inflation. It's really helping the asset class quite a bit um, because the interest rates are not rising, the wages are rising, right? And so that's, that's really been impactful and that's why we're still obviously staying in the market. A major reason is because we see, how much benefit is, is, is coming from that. And it's not just us. He mentioned that there were a lot of large companies, the big, big, I call them gorillas that are coming after multifamily deals. These are the guys that we're competing against essentially. And so they these guys typically know what's going on. They know the way forward. Well, they wouldn't be buying as institutional
0: investors if they did not think that prices would continue to go up i mean why would they you know these are sophisticated buyers they probably know no more stuff than than we do right so what do they know that we don't they're bidding prices up beyond where we're comfortable in going and maybe they're not wrong i mean it could be but you know, uh, Garrett, you're responsible for our acquisitions and, and you're stepping up, you're, you know, you're building your team, you're, you're starting to look in other markets, you're trying to increase deal flow as well. And and again, you know, we are sticking to our underwriting rules, we're making adjustments, but we are not compromising our criteria, we're building in like we talked about in the show, multiple margins for error in our underwriting, should things not go exactly the way that that we want. So if you're interested in in investing in one of our syndications, we'd love to have a conversation with you. Check us out. Our company is called Nighthawk Equity, nighthawkequity.com. And uh, we're constantly sourcing deals. I think it's a strength of ours that we have. We have a a fantastic reputation that we've been leveraging to actually get deal flow through these trusted broker relationships. So we always got something going on. If you're interested in in maybe investing outside the stock market, you want to learn more about this. uh, Check us out at nighthawkequity.com and fill out a short form, and you'll be able to speak with us there. So really enjoyed having everyone on the show. Garrett, thanks for your time, and catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. Take the next step toward financial freedom by downloading the free blueprint on closing your first multifamily deal. Head over to themichaelblanc.com slash blueprint to get the free training.